This is hell. Greetings, listeners. This is board operator Dan coming to you live this Wednesday morning with another limbo edition of This is Hell. We're in limbo because your beloved This is Hell host, Chuck Meritz, is laid up uh, with messed up guts. There is some encouraging late-breaking news on that front. On Monday, Chuck had a successful medical procedure, which could mean new episodes of This is Hell as soon as a month from now, that is mid-May. That's awesome news. Of course, we want Chuck to take all the time he needs to heal completely. Good to hear the situation is improving, though. Until he's back in the studio with live interviews, the other board ops and I are playing some of our This Is Hell favorites from the vaults. These favorites are being supplemented with all-new hangover cures, rotten histories from Rinaldo Magaldi, and moments of truth from Jeff Dorchin, and questions from hell. Speaking of which, this week's question from hell is what are you trying to ban from schools? What are you trying to ban from schools? I remember that graphic novel, Mouse, by Art Spiegelman was being banned a few weeks ago, but news moves fast, so that could very well be a reference to something even more recent. It's not too important, ultimately, because you are encouraged to just make up your own answer and post it over at the Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Once all the answers are in, the very best answer will be selected by a panel of judges and awarded with some This Is Hell merchandise. A mug, for example, or a shirt, or a toque, or any of the fine merchandise available at thisishell.com. I'll be reading some of your answers to the question from hell right after this hand-picked interview from the vaults. And for that interview, I had been looking at some David Graeber interviews. Rest in peace to David Graeber. But I think I'll play some of those next week because I was reading about the violence that happened on Friday in East Jerusalem at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and that made me want to play an interview that would give us some context for that. Briefly, what happened was that Israeli police raided Al-Aqsa Mosque in East Jerusalem, firing tear gas and stun grenades. Later, rubber bullets were fired inside the mosque compound. There were thousands of worshippers present at the time, since it was Friday prayers during Ramadan. Hundreds of Palestinians were arrested, and over 150 were injured, according to Al Jazeera News. So I thought it would be timely to play a recent interview that speaks to the conditions in occupied Palestine. I've got one from last year with Sarah Imoud. Chuck interviewed Sarah during the protests that resulted from the evictions of Palestinians from their homes in the East Jerusalem Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. I remember attending a march downtown last year during this time, and although it was in response to really dispiriting systemic violence, the march itself was a pretty uplifting experience. It was exceptionally well organized and attended. Not every political action is a euphoric experience, and they don't all need to be, but this one, seeing the Palestinian community in Chicago and everyone else coming out made me feel really hopeful. So without further ado, let's go to Sarah Imoud speaking with Chuck last year about settler colonialism in Palestine. Yeah. 
the Israeli-Palestinian situation is always presented as complicated and difficult, a complex problem that seemingly has no solution. But of late, many are saying it's not so complex after all. Once you consider, it is one of the many problems still related to colonialism. Here to help us have a better understanding of recent events in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of East Jerusalem, sociologist and anthropologist Sarah Amoud wrote the Jadalia article, Sheikh Jarrah, The Question Before Us, which you can find at jadalia.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I want to make sure that I point this out because I'll be mentioning this in our conversations later on. Sarah previously researched indigenous women's organizing against feminicide and other forms of gender violence in post-war Guatemala. So Sheikh Jarrah is the predominantly Palestinian neighborhood in Israel's East Jerusalem. Many of the Palestinians who live there were once residents of West Jerusalem but were expelled by the Israeli government. The neighborhood is named after Sheikh Jarrah, who was a physician for Saladin, the first sultan of Egypt and Syria and founder of the Ayyubid dynasty, which ruled across the Middle East and the Maghreb from the 12th to the 13th century. Symbolically, does Sheikh Jarrah have a special meaning for the Palestinian people? That's a good question. I mean, I think today what we're seeing basically is is that that it's you know it's being unveiled that Sheikh Jarrah is really a, a microcosm of what has been happening um, in historical Palestine for many years, right? Um, so I think you know as a foundation for considering the situation in Sheikh Jarrah or or any other Palestinian neighborhood um, in occupied East Jerusalem or across historical Palestine in this moment, you know, we need to understand fundamentally, um, that the conditions, uh, of Palestinians, um, are really the conditions of an indigenous population that are facing an ongoing, uh, you know, context of settler colonialism. So, so what do I mean by settler colonialism? I mean that Israel is a colonial project that is predicated on a logic of native elimination, right? A project that destroys in order to replace, that that aims to destroy native Palestinian life in order to replace it with a new settler entity, and a project that is structural and continuous, not an event, right? So I I don't know how much um, our listeners understand about kind of Palestinian and Israeli history, but, um, you know, when we refer to what Palestinians call the Nakba or the catastrophe, um, the moment in 1948 where 750,000 Palestinians, which was about 80% of the indigenous population at the time, um, were either kind of massacred or forcibly removed from their uh, their homes, their villages, their territory, right? And what became the creation of the state of Israel. Um, you know, we as Palestinians understand and the Nakba, not only as this event, this moment in time, but also as a continuous structure that shapes the conditions for Palestinian life in the colony today, right? And for Palestinian life beyond the settler colony as well. So, um, and let me know if I'm going on too long. Within this context, you know, Palestinians um, in Sheikh Jarrah, like Palestinians anywhere, are an indigenous people who are surviving and resisting this larger colonial logic of native elimination. Um, And with this framework in mind, 
you know, we can really uh, draw on the insights of other indigenous scholars and activists in other contexts, right? From Turtle Island, from, from here where we are now, um, to other spaces across the globe, really, to understand the violences inflicted on Palestinians, um, their, their homes, their spaces across time and across uh, geographic divides. I know that you just delved into this a bit, but I would just want to make sure that we stress this. How do we view Palestinians differently, especially from you know perspective right. here in the United States? How do we view Palestinians differently when we view them as indigenous people rather than just as people who are victims of colonialism? Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, part of what um, what is important about centering indigeneity um, is that, you know, when we when we talk about indigeneity, we, we also need to center um, kind of the possibilities for indigenous life, for indigenous life worlds. Um, and when we think about Palestinians as an indigenous people and we think about Israel as a settler colonial context, we can really begin to um, link what's happening in Palestine with other contexts across the world. Right. So we begin to see that this is not such a unique context after all. Right. That the the forms of violences that we're seeing inflicted against the Palestinians um, and their ongoing struggle across time for liberation, right, um, is, is not unique, right? It's, it's not uh, necessarily trapped in this, you know, what we in the United States and in other spaces have been sold to believe um, is this everlasting conflict between two religions, right, or two cultures that are kind of fundamentally at odds. Um, you know, when we understand that this is a settler colonial project, um, we understand that Palestinians are, are like many indigenous populations um, who are continuing to resist, continuing to survive um, a colonial project that is, is attempting, you know, essentially at removing them from their uh, native territory and, uh, you know, that is predicated on, on erasing them as a people. You studied, as I was saying earlier, you studied gender violence against indigenous women in post-war Guatemala. What yeah. are the similarities and differences between the treating of the Palestinian people in Sheikh Jarrah and violence toward indigenous in post-war Guatemala? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and thank you for bringing that up. I, I honestly, it's been a, it's been a minute since, um, since I really considered the context of Guatemala. Um, and actually, initially, you know, when I was, uh, deciding to become an anthropologist, I, I had wanted to train um, as a Central Americanist. And so I was um, attempting to build, you know, with indigenous communities in Guatemala, particularly indigenous women, Maya women, um, who were kind of organizing in the aftermath of the genocide, right? Um, there was a genocide um, where 200,000 indigenous Guatemalans were um, were killed by state security forces. And actually, it's interesting because, you know, if we look at the history of, of Latin America, and particularly Central America, um, we see these longstanding relationships um, with Israel as well, um, where Israel was actually, um, you know, acting um, in some senses to uh, provide weapons, to provide kind of military power um, to, you know, governments and, and Guatemala in this case in particular um, that helped to enact genocide against another indigenous people, right? Um, so there are, there are actually, you know, historical links uh, between uh, these various powers, right? Um, I think, you know, in terms of uh, some connections, you know, we can think about 
uh, you know, Maya, Maya people about, about indigenous peoples in Guatemala as also kind of resisting um, colonial formations of violence against their people that have sought to remove them from their ancestral territories um, and in, in various, various ways. Um, and in, in terms of, you know, differences, um, I think obviously there are a lot of historical and kind of contextual differences. Um, and uh, I, I could go on and on about this, but I'm not sure if I'm uh, making sense here to your listeners. <laughs> no, you are, and you can go on as long as you want. That's the best part about our, one of the best parts <laughs> of our, our show. Uh, you also you write that the first time that you heard the story of Sheikh Jarrah, it was from a child who had been displaced from her home along with her family in 2009. You write that I was young and admittedly green anthropologist, spending my first months in the field trying to comprehend what was happening in Jerusalem. But you also point out that you are from a family who has a home in Termosaya, a village in the occupied West Bank, and that has also been claimed by settlers. So how unaware are even Palestinians of the suffering right. of other Palestinians and the suffering they've gone right. through from eviction? This is a really excellent question. Um, you know, I'm someone who grew up in the diaspora, right? I was born in the United States. I'm actually a Chicago native. Um, and, you know, my father was, uh, you know, a refugee. Um, he he migrated to Chicago after going to college, um, you know, in, in another space um, in the United States uh, in the late 1960s. And when he tried to return to his village in what is now the occupied West Bank, um, he was not able to go back um, because of a military order that had basically revoked his identity card. Um, and so, you know, because of that experience, um, I was born into what we call shatat, into diaspora, into exile, right? Um, and so that disconnection, um, I think, is really, uh, you know, an experience that I share with many Palestinians, um, not just in the United States, but across the world, um, where, you know, our childhood was kind of denied to us in some in some way. Um, and so for many of us, um, it takes a sort of awakening, you know, no matter where we grow up, no matter how politicized the family um, we have, uh, you know, been raised in has has kind of, you know, been um, or educated us into. But to really understand the kind of everyday life experiences of what is happening in various parts of um, historical Palestine is a sort of awakening, um, it is a is a massive learning experience. So when I went back um, and I had not spent any of my childhood in in Palestine, um, the first time that I actually visited was uh, about 10 years ago. Um, and I, you know, I, I got to really witness and experience some of these realities. I was, uh, I was kind of shocked um, into into action, and and this is the whole reason that I, I changed my basically my entire academic career to um, to work on Palestine because of the experiences, particularly with racism um, at the border. Um, I, I remember, um, you know, the first time that I attempted to basically. Uh, enter Israel-Palestine, um, I, I was kind of, you know, in disbelief at, at the stories. Um, but, you know, when you arrive, um, there's a very 
uh, eerie kind of uh, eerily racialized disparity in the treatment that you receive um, as a Palestinian. And, and you can see this, you know, very visibly from the way that others who are going, you know, for tourism or, or folks who are from the Jewish diaspora are treated, um, you know, right away. Um, you're separated from the line at the at the kind of you know intake space. You're placed in a separate room, right, a waiting room with other Arabs, with other Palestinians, um, and then you are led into you know basically a security interrogation um, by folks who are asking you um, by members of the Israeli state, obviously border police, who are asking you the most intimate questions about your family history, um, about you know. Your, your family members' names, um, and so on and so forth. And, and after several hours of this grueling kind of security interview, you know, many of my friends, many of my colleagues have been denied entry, um, you know, have been denied the right to even enter Palestine, to see their family, to be able to experience what it is to be in their ancestral homeland. Um, you know, and if you are allowed entry, you're only allowed to enter as a tourist if you don't have an identity card. Um, and so it was that, you know, very uh, visceral experience of racism at the border. Um, and the only thing that I could compare it to really um, coming from the United States was, was, you know, basically, I don't know if you're familiar with the essay by James Baldwin, where he talks about, um, you know, going to the Jim Crow South for the first time. Um, that is what I felt that I was seeing and feeling and experiencing. It was that complete dehumanization um, that I had never fully experienced in the United States before um, that really radicalized me, that really opened my eyes to what was happening in Palestine um, as a colonial situation, as a situation of apartheid. Um, and I could not look away after that. And as you were saying, you didn't you didn't know. You did, were not aware of that visceral sensation of no. racism within the occupied territories. Uh, no, so, I, so yeah. this a, a lack of awareness. But at the same time, is that maybe why there, to to any degree, do you think that may be why there is any lack of sympathy toward the Palestinian people simply because we are not informed? Do you think that if we were right. all of a sudden informed as to what life is actually happening in Gaza? Would that really change anything? Because there are a lot of hate-filled people in the world. Right. That's a good question. I mean, I think we are in the moment um, or in the midst of a moment of a sort of awakening. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of crack, crack happening um, in what has you know, ultimately been um, the hegemony of Zionist discourse in the United States, right? Um, the Israeli lobby works very hard to portray the situation in a particular way um, and, uh, and, and has been quite successful in that regard. And I think, um, you know, things are shifting in the United States. We can't just attribute, um, you know, the kind of uh, break in, in consciousness around, you know, Israel-Palestine to the most recent intensification of, of violence and uh, you know uh, injustice um, that we're seeing in a new way on social media, um, but there's actually been a fundamental shift um, in the United States, right, in this moment um, um, around kind of race and racism and racial consciousness. So the shift that we're bearing witness to in the United States in this moment, um, you know, has kind of opened the path or opened the door. 
um, for us to be able to um, better understand the situation of Palestinians in Jerusalem and elsewhere, I really think, um, as, as a U.S. citizen. And, and I don't know if you would agree with that, but um, I think, you know, there are there are conversations that are happening more in the everyday um, that are, you know, um, kind of illuminating some of these dynamics and and uh, and are allowing us to see things a bit differently. But, you know, whether or not we actually um, act on on our, you know, newly, I guess, expanded knowledge is another question. And you point out that the little girl who first told you the story of Sheikh Jarrah was from the Al-Gawi family. Was She was five years old at the time. She told you about the yes. night she had been forcibly removed from her home. She described yes. how men dressed in black had broken down the door of her house, throwing her mother and siblings into the streets. She spoke in intimate detail about being overcome with a feeling of fear as they were surrounded by hundreds of soldiers and settlers. They're thrown out onto the street and they end up just living on the street in front of this house. How typical is that kind of eviction, as it is called in the media? And is eviction to you an accurate word to describe that experience? Right. Well, I think, you know, with this question of eviction, um, I think as many Palestinians have have pointed out, particularly, um, you know, Mohammed al-Kurd and and Mona al-Kurd and, and others who are kind of at the forefront of the struggle to um, to save Sheikh Jarrah in this moment, um, eviction is far um, too uh, kind of, you know, I don't know, it's, it's not violent enough of a term to describe what is happening um, in this neighborhood today. Um, you know, the little girl that I interviewed um, back in 2013 um, had been part of one of the first waves of these evictions um, that, that, were, that were taking place or, or what might, you know, more accurately be called forcible transfer um, or some other term, right? Um, and basically, um, I was trying to understand, you know, what was really happening um, to Palestinian communities in Jerusalem. I had heard kind of, you know, broader stories about displacement. Um, and, and I'm not sure if I can, can I, do I have space to talk about kind of East Jerusalem a little bit? Sure, go ahead. Um, so basically, you know, if you don't know much about the story of Jerusalem, um, when, when Israel occupied East Jerusalem in 1967, the state extended domestic law into the newly occupied territory. And since then, um, the state has really deliberately changed the demographic composition of the city um, through you know, large-scale um, state-sponsored settlement of the Jewish-Israeli civilian population and this policy of forced transfer targeting the city's indigenous Palestinian inhabitants. Um, so, you know, Israeli leadership has been very um, kind of out front about this, right? They've been very um, public about these plans. Uh, that The former head of Arab affairs in Jerusalem, right, Israeli leadership, um, basically, you know, fearing their position in Jerusalem was unstable in the eyes of the international community in 1967, because, you know, essentially what Israel has been doing is occupying East Jerusalem in defiance of international law, um, adopted two basic principles for solidifying control over what the Israeli state has want, has sought to um, create as a unified capital, right? Um, so the first principle was basically to um, rapidly increase the Jewish population in East Jerusalem. And the second principle um, has really been to, to hinder the growth of the Palestinian population and to force 
um, you know, Arab residents to make their homes elsewhere. And again, these are the words of um, the former head of Arab affairs in Jerusalem, right? To force Arabs to make their homes elsewhere. So, you know, Israel has been um, quite blunt about its primary objective, um, which is really the permanent eviction and erasure of indigenous Palestinians from the city while simultaneously um, you know, moving a Jewish population to the city in order to occupy and solidify control over a unified capital for the Jewish state, right? There's actually um, an official policy that's called a policy of demographic balance, um, which, which the Israeli state has been attempting to accomplish, which mandates a ratio of 28% Palestinians and 72% Jewish Israelis as a policy objective, right? So we're talking about um, kind of, you know, uh, public policies, right? Um, and the use of kind of bureaucracy, um, this, this kind of system of underlying everyday violence um, that, is, that is operating you know, through the mechanism of, of Israeli colonial bureaucracy and, and, and city planning um, that is really condemning Palestinians you know, in Sheikh Jarrah and elsewhere, right? There's so many different neighborhoods that are, that are experiencing um, similar modes of violence um, you know, that is experiencing in this moment. You know, it's condemning Palestinians to live in this state of constant fear of losing their right to home, of losing their right to stay in the city and kind of relegating them um, to this um, impossible space, right? Um, so, you know, basically, um, you know, there are all these other policies that work in tandem with, uh, you know, displacement of Palestinians from their homes, right? And these settler takeovers that are happening that we're seeing happen um, on an everyday basis. Um, there are, you know, residency laws, right? Um, for those who aren't familiar, uh, when Israel uh, unlawfully occupied East Jerusalem in 1967, indigenous Palestinians were not granted citizenship, right? They were granted another status called permanent residency. And permanent residency um, is a status that's usually granted to foreigners on long-term stay in Israel. Um, and, and it effectively situated Palestinians as immigrants or as invaders um, in their own indigenous lands, right? So, so unlike citizenship, um, permanent residency can be revoked at any time um, by the Israeli state. It does not allow Palestinians the unconditional right to stay, um, to be reunited with their relatives, right? it's not automatically passed on to children. So this is why we see um, thousands of Palestinian children who have been born to Palestinian uh, families in Jerusalem, but are living without any documentation status, right? Um, and does not ent entail the right to, um, to vote in national elections. Um, and, and this is also a status that is closely monitoring Palestinians' um, or that is that is uh, that is closely monitored by the Israeli state. Um, so there's another policy um, that sounds. I mean, it's going to sound very Orwellian to 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 your listeners, but this is a real policy. It's called the Center of Life policy, um, and it's a policy that requires Palestinians to provide documents 
such as homeownership papers, um, rental agreements, electricity, water and tax bills, salary documents, um, certificates of children's school registration, and, and other things of this sort in order to maintain their status um, and that of their families, um, right? So I, I've heard, you know, in, in interviewing um, women in particular um, throughout East Jerusalem that, uh, you know, uh, basically investigators from uh, the Jerusalem municipality who are basically investigating um, their residency status will come and, for instance, visit their homes and look inside the fridge to see if there's enough food in the fridge that would prove that there's actually somebody living here long term. Right. Um, you know, things like this. So since 1967, um, Israel has revoked um, over over 15,000 uh, residency statuses, I believe, of Palestinians, um, which basically removes them from the population registry and, and denies them the, the right to return to Jerusalem, to live in Jerusalem under Israeli law, right? So this is part of the broader uh, context of what's happening in tandem with uh, what we're seeing in Sheikh Jarrah, which is this, this you know, brutality, the violence of actually dispossessing indigenous Palestinians of their homes, right? Um, and for those who are um, willing and, and able to um, commit to these or submit rather to these rigid demands um, required to maintain the residency status, Israel's development policies um, are, are just another kind of layer of the obstacles, right? Israeli authorities have systematically imposed restrictions on Palestinian development in East Jerusalem. Um, you know, 35% of East Jerusalem land has been expropriated for Israeli settlement construction, right? Um, Palestinians are limited to building on a very small percentage of East Jerusalem land. Um, they are systematically denied building permits, right? It's almost impossible to get a permit to expand your home, um, even though, you know, folks have families who are growing, right? Um, but, but, you know, and then they're forced to build um, you know, what's considered illegally under, you know, Israeli law, which frequently leads to the risk of home demolition by Israeli authorities. Um, and, and this has happened in the thousands since 1967, right, where Palestinians are, are actually having their homes demolished because it's impossible to get a building permit from Israeli authorities. Um, at the same time, you know, the state kind of strategically disinvests um, from basic services for Palestinian residents, right? Um, from the schools, from municipal services, you know, sewage, water, garbage, all the things we take for granted in everyday life, right? Roads and infrastructure, um, you know, uh, you know, it, it, these are these are all kind of factors that that work together to um, to make Palestinian life difficult in the city, right? Um, and, and Palestinians will. You, you know, part of this is, is in order to make it so difficult that Palestinians will want to leave um, the city of their own accord, right? Um, you know, th there's a large percentage of, of Palestinian Jerusalemites living under the poverty line, right? Um, and, and this is a, a status that has um, increased with the construction of the apartheid wall, um, which really severed um, several Jerusalem neighborhoods from other parts of the city and has really deepened um, kind of, you know, economic, social, cultural, religious um, kind of separation, right? Separation of communities. Um, so we're talking about, you know, a population that has lived um, with kind of, you know, very, very 
a number of challenges um, with with the divestment or disinvestment in kind of all aspects of their everyday life, right? Um, where where there is basically very little access to the things that um, that people need to survive, right? Um, and and what we what we really see, I think, is you know, is is a racialized divide of the city, right? This is colonialism. This is what apartheid looks like. Right. The ghettoization and the neglect of Palestinian neighborhoods um, across occupied East Jerusalem. Right. Neighborhoods that are are suffocated by poverty, um, that are that are punctuated by illegal Israeli settlements um, and by Israeli settlers who are literally invading people's homes, as we see in Sheikh Jarrah. Right. We see the settlers moving into the Al-Kurd family home and taking it over room by room literally, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, disenfranchised zones um, that that then are, are depicted as 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 being played by plagued by lawlessness, right? Um, you know, plagued by criminality. Um, you know, these are neighborhoods that are subject to constant surveillance and militarized policing. Right. I, I don't know if you all have been watching the news, but you know, we're seeing um, this kind of outrageous use of force um, by Israeli police and military. Um, you know, we, we see, you know, these these armed guards on horseback and on um, on foot kind of dragging people and brutally beating people in the streets. Um, you know, just just two days ago, there was a video released um, of a young girl um, being shot in her back by Israeli police with rubber coated bullets, um, you know, as she was standing in the doorway of her own home in Sheikh Jarrah, right? Um, um, so, so you know, what we're seeing is 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 an indigenous population that is being um, caged, that is being suffocated, um, that is being targeted by military force, um, and and that is being. Um, you know, dehumanized um, at the same time. Um, so I think, you know, this really provides a, a bit more kind of context for what we're seeing. Um, so, so, you know, these are all the layers that I feel like um, that I didn't fully understand as a Palestinian um, when I was first being exposed to the story of Sheikh Jarrah. Um, so this little girl story from the Al-Gawi family, um, when she told me, um, and, and she was five years old and I have a five-year-old daughter now. Um, and, and, you know, she told me about, you know, being woken up in the middle of the night, um, hearing the screams of her mother and her father trying to, to rush her siblings and she um, outside into safety. You know, she talked about her home being broken down by soldiers um, with, with, you know, scary weapons, um, you know, standing in the middle of the street with glass on the ground. I mean, you know, a, a child's way of describing things, right, in a very blunt manner. Um, you know, she talked about um, being forced to um, essentially be homeless on the street. Um, and, and her family had nowhere to go, right? Um, you know, she talked about eating on the street and bathing on the street and sleeping on the street in front of her home. Um, she talked about missing her swing set and missing the lemon tree um, that her mother used to pick lemons from. Um, and, and, and again, you know, asking why, right? Like, why is this settler family allowed to move into my home? Why are these two Jewish children um, able to take over my swing set, right? Why, 
um, is their childhood basically um, more valuable than mine? Um, I think, you know, that really opened up a lot for me. Um, and it was it was really her story and and learning, um, you know, a, a bit of her experience um, that really opened my eyes for the first time to these larger processes um, of, of violent kind of displacement um, in Jerusalem. And you mentioned this kind of Jewish identity that's tied just to this one uh, nation state. And you write, as the girl drew me a picture of her home, the Palestinian child spoke of a morning when the settler uh, mother came out onto the front steps to offer her an egg for breakfast. She had woken up a few moments earlier, wrapped in a sleeping bag next to her mother, brothers, and father on the street in front of her home. When I asked her whether she took the egg, she shot me a look of such complete disbelief that I felt ashamed for even asking the question. No, she said she had not taken the egg. She had told the woman that she did not want an egg from her table. She wanted her house back. How do you think, I know this is an odd question, but how do you think that affects the people who occupy her home? What happens when you live a life where you throw people out of their home and the people with nowhere to go live on the streets in front of the house you now live in, seeing that suffering every day and recognizing it by offering food? You, clearly, they recognize the suffering. It's absolutely horrible and awful what has happened to this little girl and her family. But what can that kind of relationship do to the humanity of the occupier? Well, I think that's a really, really important question, Chuck. Um, I mean, I, I honestly don't know um, whether whether the occupier sees sees us as human. You know, I mean, I, I don't know um, what this situation um, feels and and looks like at a, at a visceral level. Um, from from the position of the colonizer, but um, but it's pretty, um, you know, uh, I guess, you know, in your face at the moment um, that uh, that there is a kind of fundamental dehumanization happening that allows um, settlers, that allows um, people, you know, among kind of uh, Israeli civil society um, to continue to um, participate. Um, in these policies um, that are that are violating uh, Palestinians and and Palestinian bodies and Palestinian home spaces and so forth, right? Um, I, I don't know if you all have been watching uh, the news over the past several weeks um, and seen some of these groups out in the streets um, calling openly for death to Arabs, um, you know, chanting for um, you know Arabs to be uh, killed, right? Um, I don't know if you've seen some of the, the footage that is being aired um, with, with uh, Palestinians literally being lynched in the streets, right, by mobs of, of uh, Jewish civilians and, and Jewish settlers. Um, but I think, you know, what you're, what you're pointing to in your question um, is, is the fact that, you know, the colonizer is also dehumanized by this process of, of colonization, right? Um, um, you know, uh, the colonizer kind of kind of loses um, his humanity um, in dehumanizing the colonized, right? And, and what we're seeing um, with these kind of, uh, you know, very outward um, moments of anti-Palestinian racism, um, of, of kind of calls for um, the killing of Palestinians, of calls for um, kind of eliminating Palestinians from their homeland, um, is really um, 
a manifestation of that, right? Is really a manifestation of, um, of, of the dehumanizing effects of colonialism on the colonizer themselves. You also point out that like the gesture of refusal by those who Israeli security forces tried to evict a small but powerful act of rebelliousness that defines a Palestinianness that refuses erasure, the ongoing struggle of Palestinians to defend their homes, to refuse being violently uprooted from Jerusalem is a reminder that decolonization is not an abstract noun. It is a verb that implies action. To what extent is the world still engaged in a global war lingering since the end of World War II against colonization and in support? I, think I of lost the end of your question there. I'm sorry. Uh, is the to what degree to what extent is the world still engaged in a global war lingering since the end of World War II against colonialism and in support of decolonization? Are we still in a 75-year war against colonialism? That's a really good question. Um, I think many would argue, right, that that colonialism never fully ended um, and that we're still um, obviously living, you know, not only with the afterlife of, of colonialism, but also the afterlife of slavery. Right. Um, and, and part of um, what remains is this kind of imperial category of the human. Right. Um, which which we take for granted, right? This this sphere of universal humanness, um, and and again, I'm building on kind of the work of Sylvia Winter and others, um, but but you know all of this, you know, the border, the space of the border, the militarized border, um, this kind of racial divide, right? Racialized colonial divide between a self and an other. Um, these are all kind of products of a particular epistemology um, that came into being um, through kind of European colonial expansion, right? Um, and um, I think, you know, part of what folks are saying is that by, uh, you know, that we need to unveil this system, right? We need to continue to unveil this system, um, you know, a system through which these epistemologies of what Fanon calls the wretched of the earth, um, you know, those who are fundamentally outside the boundaries of the human, right, are made. Um, so, so in Palestine, um, part of what I'm saying is that, you know, the question of Palestinian liberation is also fundamentally um, a question about anti-colonialism. Um, it's fundamentally a question about race, right? The struggle over Jerusalem and the struggle to protect indigenous Palestinian identity of the city um, is also about kind of racial geographies, right? Um, you know, the question of Jerusalem today and, the, and, and Palestine more broadly is at its core a racial question. Right, that Palestinian freedom is about a wider global struggle against racism, against racial categories, and against this imperial category of the human. Um, so I think, uh, you know, Palestine, um, you know, Palestine brings into view kind of these larger questions around, um, you know, how do we alter the category of the human for our time? Right. What what is a decolonial project look like in this moment? Um, and I think, you know, Palestine, you know, and what we're seeing, you know, not just in Jerusalem, but elsewhere um, is really the ruins of, of imperialism. Right. Right. It's it's the apocalypse. Um, so what do we do with the ruins? Right. How do we reimagine um, the possibility for life beyond the apocalypse, beyond the ruins of a settler colonialism? Um, that is that is killing our people, that is killing the Palestinian people in different modes, um, day in and day out. And I think that, oh, sorry, please. Go, go, go ahead. 
No, no. I think this is what um, the youth of Palestine are doing today with this new era of Palestinian resistance, right? What they're calling the unity and hope intifada. Um, what they're calling for in my reading is is not just, you know, an end to Israeli occupation um, or even an end to to settler colonialism. Um, it's It's a call for the end of the world as we know it, right? Um, and that's what uh, decolonization really means. You were talking about the racial differences. You write about how this is a, a situation, again, of white supremacy when it comes to Israel and Palestine. I have seen people argue online that this is not an example of apartheid. Apartheid, apartheid is not the accurate word to use because apartheid is a definition that includes race and that the Jewish people and the Arab people are of the same race. So why do you see them as different races? Right. Well, this is a really interesting question. I think, you know, to answer that, we have to go back, um, you know, back to the kind of foundations of, of Zionism, right, which are the foundations of the Israeli state and this larger project. Um, I think, you know, Zionism obviously was, was a response um, to, you know, this real influx of, of anti-Semitism across Europe, right? Um, and And the kind of horrific violence of of the holocaust um but but rather than challenging the orientalist image um that excluded and subjugated the jewish people in europe you know zionism internalized and reproduced them right um so you know uh, nura arakat uh who is a, a wonderful critical race scholar and legal theorist um, writes about how um, Zionism modeled this idea of the new Jew on on kind of white European values and culture, um, you know, in in opposition to uh, Eastern cultural markers carried by Middle Eastern Jews, right, and and certainly by Muslim and Christian Europe Arabs. Um, so so Zionism was really a derivative of Enlightenment Europe. Um, and in, in being a derivative of Enlightenment Europe, it reproduced these polarized binaries of a superior um, enlightened West and an inferior primitive East, right? It claimed that the Jewish people as a national, um, as a national entity belonged to the superior enlightened West um, in spite of their geographical origins in the East um, and sought to enlighten um, you know, it's primitive peoples, right? So, so this is a project um, that really um, reified European supremacy, right? Israel's founders reified white supremacy in ascribing a newfound value onto Jewish subjectivity, right? Onto the Jewish people um, and nationality in relation to the Palestinian other. And I think this is um, really important, right? In order for there to be a creation of um, a kind of Western enlightened sense of self, there has to be the creation of a racialized other, right? Um, so through an assertion of Zionism, you know, the non-white Jewish victims of anti-Semitism could, you know, in the words of, of other scholars, uh, Abu Levin and Bekan, um, they could assert a bridge from non-whiteness to whiteness, right? They could identify with European global hegemony. Um, so in its alliance with global white supremacy, Zionism really absorbed all of the racialized logics that were foundational to Enlightenment Europe. Um, and that's why, why I really see this as um, fundamentally um, a, a racial question. 
One last question for you. We have been speaking with sociologist and anthropologist Sarah Amoud, who wrote the Jadalia article, Sheikh Jarrah, the question before us. She is an assistant professor of sociology and anthropology at the College of the Holy Cross. One last question for you, Sarah, and what we do, our final question for everybody, I promise we do this with everybody, our final question (laughs) is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. It's going to fall into one of those categories. So (laughs) last week, the Associated Press, they fired Emily Wilder after caving to pressure from Stanford University Republicans who were upset about her pro-Palestinian activism while she attended Stanford years ago. The far right is going through everyone's social media posts trying to find anything they can claim as anti-Semitism and canceling anyone who ever spoke up against the policies of the Israeli government. How afraid should I or anyone be, how afraid should you be of being canceled because of your opposition to Israeli government policies that lead to the deaths of Palestinians? This is a super important question. Um, I have already been canceled. So um, I think, you know, for for all of us who are Palestinian, um, you know, we we live with that as a as a possibility that is always there, right? Um, when I was a postdoc um, at Boston University, um, I had a smear campaign waged against me for my, um, you know, scholarship in defense of Palestinian rights, and in particular um, against the kind of militarized uh, violence um, directed at Palestinian women and children. Um, and, you know, I think Emily Wilder. Um, and others who are beginning to speak out against, uh, you know, the violations of Palestinians um, in Jerusalem and elsewhere across historical Palestine, who are beginning to speak out, um, you know, for Palestinian freedom, um, you know, they are just beginning to experience what we Palestinians have been experiencing for a very long time. Um, I think this is a moment um, where, you know, we have to speak up. Um, I think. Uh, you know, the Israeli lobby certainly um, will be following um, all of us and and kind of, you know, creating their own um, last-ditch efforts to kind of defend apartheid, to defend um, settler colonialism, to defend um, the policies um, of the Israeli state. Um, but I think, you know, the, you know, what is the horizon of our, of our politics, right? What are we willing to risk? Um, I think, you know, what we're saying as Palestinians right now, um, what what young people on the ground are saying, um, what young people in Sheikh Jarrah who are defending their homes, um, what, what people coming from across historical Palestine and defying the borders um, that the Israeli state has imposed on our people for decades, right? What young people are saying when they're calling for a unity and hope into Fatha, um, when they're calling for Um, one Palestine, for one united people, for one liberation struggle, um, is really that there is no neutral position for any of us here, right? Either you are with justice and liberation of the Palestinian people, um, or you are siding with the oppressor. And that is a question that everyone needs to ask themselves in this moment. Am I going to side with the liberation of the Palestinian people, or am I going to side with the oppressor? And what am I willing to risk? 
And one thing that we did not touch on, and this I just want to tell everybody, you've got to go check out Sarah's writing. Again, Sheikh Sharah, the question before us, which you can find at jadalia.com, in that uh, Sarah, Sarah talks about uh, rethinking borders and the conceptualizing of borders and what borders mean and how they always lead to exploitation and violence. It's really a fascinating read, Sarah. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show this week. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate um, all of your time and thought and energy um, for creating this space. I promise you will not be canceled from our show. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Take care, Sarah. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. That was sociologist and anthropologist Sarah Umud talking to Chuck last year during the protests resulting from the evictions of Palestinians from their homes in East Jerusalem. When you're looking at Israel through the lens of settler colonialism, as Sarah suggests we do, uh, you see that wringing your hands every few years about violence in Palestine and treating it as some sort of deviation from an ordinarily peaceful or just situation doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The project of the state requires ongoing violence, and it's central to its functioning. She used the word apartheid, which is entirely appropriate when describing the situation in Palestine. That was a great interview. If you found that interview enlightening or deprogramming in any way, you can support us at This Is Hell by joining our Patreon, patreon.com slash thisishell. When we're out of limbo, Chuck will be resuming his special Patreon-only weekly broadcasts, And as I mentioned at the top of the show, Chuck is feeling better. So make sure you jump on the Patreon bandwagon now so you don't miss his triumphant return Patreon episode. Let's read some questions from hell. Remember, this week's question from hell is, what are you trying to ban from schools? What are you trying to ban from schools? And there was a healthy response to this question. Chris H. says, administrators. Stingray P says Pogs, Minecraft. Mike R says God. Jack B says Sandals Worn with White Socks. Oh, I've been guilty of that one. Lisa B says Faculty Meetings. It's an anti-authoritarian streak I've noticed in our listenership. Jeff C says Curriculum, Cops, School Uniforms, Report Cards. That's satisfying to say out loud. And those are all good ideas. Victor P. says ignorance. Would that a tour so simple. And finally, Brandon F. says P.E. Military indoctrination. Western-centric revisionist history books. Cops. Single file lines. Homework. And rules. Yeah. I like the uh, schools out energy there. All right. I'll leave the rest for Lindsay tomorrow. Lindsay will be playing an interview with Adrienne Marie Brown, the author of Pleasure Activism, and she'll have an all-new moment of truth truth with Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff puts on his tragic comedy mask. That about wraps things up for this Wednesday morning edition of This Is Hell. I enjoyed playing a classic This Is Hell interview from The Vaults for You, and I look forward to doing it again next week. Until then. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. 
and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.